God, we thank you for this moment that we have to dive into your word. God, we do not take this lightly. God, we come to you expectantly. Lord, we expect you to work in this moment through the power of your word. God, we thank you that you do know each and every one of us intimately and personally. God, you know our stories, you know our struggles. God, you know the burdens that we carry. God, you know the type of weekends that each of us have had. And so, Lord, I just pray that you'd use your word to meet us exactly where we are, to grow us, to mature us. God, help our eyes to be fixed upon Jesus, I pray in his name. Amen. Well, have you ever had the experience of realizing that you were aiming at the wrong target? Or maybe you were, you were traveling to the wrong uh, destination. That maybe it was uh, you're, you're driving somewhere, or maybe you did the wrong homework assignment, but, but there's that feeling that, that kind of comes over you, this realization of not only embarrassment, but also frustration. Uh, I remember uh, for me, as, as I was uh, playing basketball in, in high school, I was, um, I was playing at this really big basketball tournament, this traveling AAU uh, weekend, and there were college scouts that were watching uh, my team play. And it's this really big game. We're playing like our rivals. And, uh, and it was a really, really physical game. And there was this one play in which the ball just was kind of just bouncing. It was a loose ball. It's kind of up for grabs. And, uh, and if you know basketball, you know that any type of, of loose ball, you're supposed to dive on it, right? It's, it's up for grabs. And so I was a fairly scrappy player. And so there's this loose ball. And so I dive on it, okay? Now, other, other uh, players from the opposing team had the same idea. And so they jumped for the ball at the same time I did. And so it's almost like this kind of like this wrestling match on the basketball court for the same ball. And so we're kind of wrestling over the ball. The ball like kind of slips out, pops out, starts dribbling down the court. And some more of my teammates and opposing teammates jump on that. And of course, the ball pops out of that. It's like almost playing hot potato until finally the ball is actually near me. And so I, I pick up that ball and I start dribbling to the basket, and, and I score a layup. And I, of course, you know, I slap glass on the way, because that's what I love to do. And so I made this layup, and I start cheering. I'm like, man, like, I, you know, where are my teammates? Where are the high fives? And, and yet my teammates are looking at me like, dude, you, you scored for the wrong team. <laughs> like, it's the wrong bucket. Like, you, you were aiming at the wrong target. And, and I just kind of put my hand down and was like, I, and I felt like embarrassment in that moment, but I also felt this frustration because I, I put in all kinds of energy. I was diving on the floor and put all, my, all, all that kind of work into getting the ball only to score for the wrong team. Now, I share that with you because that type of, of embarrassment and frustration is not only true when you're aiming at the wrong target in sports or homework or whatever it might be, but that's also true for the church. That for the church, it, it is vitally important for the church to make sure that, that we have the right target that we're aiming at, that, that we have the right mission, that we are, we are headed in the right direction. And the reason for that is because there are a million good things that the church can do or could do, but having a clear mission and a clear strategy helps to identify what the church should do, not just what we can do, but what is what is our assignment from God in this point in human history that, that we as a church should be pursuing? 
See, having a clear mission and a clear strategy uh, also helps us to avoid uh, this, this realization where we wake up 10 years from now or 20 years from now and we start asking the question like, wait, what are we doing as a church? Like, where, where are we headed? Like, we're, we're doing good things, but like, what, what's our direction? What's, what's our vision? What is our assignment from God? See, there, there's this temptation within the, the church world where you can get so caught up doing good things that you miss the, the right target that God has for you, that you can pursue the, the latest fads or you can pursue uh, felt needs at the expense of the mission that God has given our specific church. I remember being in seminary and there was this, this quote about the relationship between church and mission that has never left me. The, the quote is this, that the church exists by mission just as fire exists by burning. I love that quote because it, it kind of captures this, this inseparable relationship between mission and the church. Where there is no flame, there is no fire. Where there is no mission, there is no church. And that is, is why we're in this series this month. That's why we're taking today to talk about what is the mission of our church? What is our assignment uh, from God in this point in human history and then the next three weeks, I'll unpack what our strategy, strategy is for accomplishing uh, that mission. And so if you're new to College Park Church, our mission here is igniting a passion to follow Jesus. And I'll unpack that for the rest of our time together uh, this morning. But the sermon series is called Following Jesus Together. And there's a reason for that. That's essentially what we mean by discipleship. That we don't want to make discipleship overly complex or difficult it's basically following Jesus and helping someone else follow Jesus with you, that you're doing this uh, together. And so our strategy will help uh, unpack how it is that we make disciples and how it is that we accomplish our mission. And so over the next three weeks, I'll spend, um, I'll spend each week unpacking kind of these three elements to our new strategy revolving around belong, grow, and multiply. But today, let's talk about the mission of College Park Fishers, and answer the question, why Ephesians 4? Why, why spend time in the book of Ephesians in talking about our mission? Well, two main reasons. Number one, I think Paul, specifically in chapter 4 here, provides a snapshot or a description of what a healthy church actually looks like. That Paul is, is going to unpack for us what it looks like for a church to be on mission. Now, no surprise here, Paul basically says it's, it's all about Jesus. It's all about growing in our relationship with Jesus and, and being a church that's centered on the person and work of Jesus. That Paul, for the first three chapters in Ephesians, talks about uh, theology. And then chapters 4, 5, and 6, the second half of the book, he talks about practical living. Or in other words, the first three chapters is about orthodoxy, right thinking. The second half is about orthopraxy, right living. And so we're in chapter 4 where Paul is describing how it is that we live out our relationship with Jesus. What does it look like to ignite a passion to follow Jesus? That's the first reason. Second reason why we're in Ephesians 4 is because Ephesians provides a warning for us as a church of what to avoid. This church in Ephesus that, that Paul started, that he heavily influenced, that he would later give to young Timothy to pastor, is a case study of what happens 
when you lose sight of your mission as a church that's centered on Jesus. Now, the reason why I say that is because when you read Ephesians, this is a very positive letter. This letter is is rich in good doctrine. Paul has a lot of good things to say about this church at Ephesus. And yet, something happens to this church where where it moves from being this healthy church that's on mission to being a church that's distracted, that has the wrong target. The reason why I say that is because when you read Revelation chapters 2 and 3, you'll see that Jesus writes seven letters to seven different churches. And one of those churches, one of the seven, is the church at Ephesus. It's our Ephesians church. In fact, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, Jesus has some strong things to say about this church. Jesus says, or the, the word says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's Jesus. That's what Jesus says about, about our church here in Ephesus. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Okay, so positive so far. But then he says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, those are heavy words from, from Jesus to this church. That, that's, that's quite a, a different place that we find the church of Ephesus than, than reading chapters 1 through 6 where it's very, very positive. So my question is like, how, how does this church go from being healthy on mission to abandoning their first love, who is Jesus. Well, one thing that I I think that we can find out in this is that their passion for Jesus was hijacked by all kinds of other things in this world. That they went from being passionate and following Jesus to abandoning their love and their passion for Jesus. We know that when when our heart is captured by anything else other than Jesus, our actions follow suit. And that's true in the church. Now, why talk about passion? Like, why is our mission igniting a passion to follow Jesus? Well, I think Tim Keller gets at the role of passion and desire very well with this quote. He talks about it this way. He says, whatever captures the heart's trust and love also controls the feelings and behavior. That what the heart most wants, the mind finds reasonable, the emotions find valuable, and the will finds doable. What makes people into what they are is the order of their loves. That is more fundamental to who you are than even the beliefs to which you mentally subscribe. That your loves show what you actually believe in, not what you say you do. So change happens not just by giving the mind new arguments, but also by feeding the imagination new beauties. See, that is so very true, that that whatever grabs hold of our passions and our desires and our loves, that is what we eventually become, and that's actually who we really are. So our mission is igniting a passion to follow Jesus because 
we don't want people just to know Jesus. We don't want people just to follow Jesus or be indifferent about Jesus, but we want there to be a, a white-hot passion, a, 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 a type of passion where their hearts and their desires are inflamed with the beautiful person of Jesus. And that's our goal because we know that, that when their passions are centered upon Jesus, their life revolves around Jesus. So the question is, how do we do that? How, how does that passion exist? How do we stay on the mission of igniting a passion to follow Jesus? Well, Paul, I think, points out four very helpful keys in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. Let me walk through each of these. Here's number one. The first key to staying on mission, is that we follow Jesus by using the gifts that he gives. This is the first key to staying on mission, is understanding what these gifts are and its role in helping us stay on mission. Now look at verses 11 and 12 with me. It says, and he, referring to Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Let's pause for a moment, just unpack that uh, for a couple of moments. Now, we're, we're jumping into the first part of Ephesians 4 with very little context. So let's maybe back up to verse 8 here and kind of understand what Paul has already said, just to set the framework. Paul says in verse 8, if you let your eye go there, he says, Therefore it says, when he, talking about Jesus... Ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, in saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. So, really confusing part. So, this is basically what Paul is saying. He's saying that Jesus, from heaven, descended down into the earth, 2,000 years ago, he, he lived this perfect life. He got up on a cross. He died for our sins. And in doing so, in, in his death and in his resurrection, in doing so, he made salvation possible. And so Jesus goes from dying, resurrecting back to life, and then he ascends back up to the Father and sits at the right hand of the Father, holding all dominion and authority over all. And then you get to the end of verse 10, and Paul says, he explains why he did this. He did all of this, the last phrase there, that he might fill all things. So what is Paul telling us here? He's saying that Jesus achieved all dominion, has, has salvation made accessible and possible for all, and then according to verse 8, he gave gifts to men. Now what gifts are they? What, what did Jesus give to the church? Well, according to our verse, in verse 11, he gave the apostles... He gave the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Now, isn't that interesting? Like Jesus, upon, uh, upon completing salvation and, and achieving all dominion, gives gifts to the church, but he doesn't give wealth. He doesn't give property. He doesn't give buildings. He doesn't give technology. Jesus gives the church gifts in the form of people. It's so fascinating. He gives, he gives these gifts in the form of people who are gifted to help with the work of ministry. Now, there are five categories given to the church here. Some believe that there are only four if you viewed shepherds and teachers as the same. 
But let me just unpack each of these categories briefly to help us understand how that helps us stay on mission. The first is uh, apostles. That apostles throughout the New Testament are described as serving the church by establishing churches in areas that have not yet been reached. That apostles are, are particularly gifted in starting churches, planning churches, where the gospel hasn't gone yet. Now, Paul describes himself as an apostle, and he basically describes his ministry as in Romans 15, 20, that he makes it, he says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. It's basically what apostle does. And apostles today, they do not have the same apostolic authority as what they did in the first century, but nonetheless, they still play a vital role in serving the church. Now, number two, the second category, uh, the prophets. A prophet is one who is gifted for the purpose of edification, comforts, encouragement, and even to communicate and understand revelation about God. Now, the prophets exist not to add revelation upon what God has already, uh, what God has already determined in the canon of Scripture. But prophets are particularly gifted in explaining the revelation of Scripture to edify the people of God. Now, thirdly, the evangelists. Now, these individuals are gifted and passionate at winning those to Christ. And so you look at these first three categories, and they all kind of go together. The evangelists win people to Christ. The apostles start these new churches. And the prophets help fill in needed revelation from God's Word to edify the saints. And then you get to the last two categories, which I hold the shepherds and teachers um, as two different categories, although they overlap. In other words, all pastors or shepherds are teachers, but not all teachers are necessarily shepherds or, or pastors. So teachers exercise their role by helping to feed the church with God's word. Shepherds do the same, but they also hold the role of leadership and overseeing the church. Now, Jesus has given these gifts, and according to Paul, I think Paul is driving at the fact that he's given these gifts to help us stay on mission and follow Jesus. But how? How does that tie in? Well, Paul helps us understand that by supplying three reasons why Jesus gives these kinds of gifts to the church. Look at verses 12 and 13. Three reasons. First, to equip the saints. Secondly, to build up the church. And then thirdly, to mature us into the full stature of Christ, according to verse 13. And so Paul's main point here is that Jesus has given the church these gifts, these pastors, these teachers, these evangelists, etc., to exist not to do all of the work of ministry, but their role in helping us stay on mission is to help equip the church and the people of God to do the work of ministry. So you have pastors and you have teachers, etc., but their role is not to do everything. Their role is to help the people of God to do the work of ministry. And so there, there's kind of a, a danger here that we need to avoid that, that the, the church of Ephesus might have fallen into where they started to look at the pastors or they started to look at the people on staff and say, you're doing the work of ministry. We'll just sit here and, and we'll show up and we'll tithe, but you're doing all of the work. See, when a church falls into that mindset 
where they're, where they're leaning back and they're letting the pastors and the staff do the majority of the work of ministry, they're putting a ceiling on how effective they can actually live out the mission of the church. See, what Paul is saying here is that living out the mission of the church belongs to the people of God. And the role of these five categories of people, these gifts, is to equip the church to do the work of ministry. Give you a practical example. Like if you're if you've ever um, had the Lord just lay something on your heart, just something to do for the kingdom, or something to do to edify the church, and your knee-jerk response is, "We need Chris to lead it," or "We need or we need Tim to do it," or "We need Dustin to." If that's your knee-jerk response, you're missing this point in Ephesians four that we're here to equip, to empower, but you are to do the work of ministry. And when you lose sight of that, we start to move off the mission of the church. I was just talking to a, a, uh, a mature woman in our church uh, about her desire to start a Bible study uh, with other women. And she's, she's trying to almost sell this Bible study to me. She's trying to convince me that this is right. And, and I just stopped her and I said, I said, look, this is awesome. Like, this is, this is amazing. Like, you don't need permission from me to do discipleship. Like, of course, we've got a vision. We've got a philosophy of ministry that, that helps us know what we should do, not what we can do. But, but I was just so thankful and just encouraged that someone is moving from, from basically the sidelines to in the game. That, that fills me with joy. So I'm like, go do it. Go, yes, go do that Bible study. Go, go equip people. Go make disciples. Like, you don't need my approval to do that. But when churches develop this mindset of, oh man, we need the staff to do this or we need the pastor to do that, that's when you start to drift off mission. And so Paul is helping us align ourselves with what the role is of the body of Christ. That's the first key. The second key is that we follow Jesus by being filled with him being filled with him. So Paul helps us understand how to follow Jesus by helping us see that Jesus not only gives us the, these gifts in the form of people, but Paul also helps us understand that Jesus wants to fill us with himself. He not only gives gifts, but he also gives us himself. Look at verse 13 with me. Paul says, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, we've already looked at how Jesus has given these gifts in the form of people to help edify, to help equip, to attain maturity. But then you get to the end of verse 13 there, and he says, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, what does that mean, and what, what does that have to do with, with being filled with Jesus? Well, again, let's, let's look back at the end of verse 10, that Paul says that Jesus has done all of this. and says, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Okay, so that's the purpose of God's salvation, that God's salvation, he, he, he's not trying to save us, and just immediately bring us to heaven. That's not why God saves us. But God saves us, not just to be the, the savior of the church, but he wants to be the inhabitants of the church. That he's not just trying to save us and launch us into heaven. He wants to save us and fill us with himself. 
That this is what Jesus is trying to do in the world. He's trying to fill all things with himself, including you and including the church. That's why Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19 is this. He says, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. And as Jesus fills us, as he fills our church, we are maturing and becoming uh, more into the stature of the fullness of Christ. So how does this help us stay on mission of igniting a passion to follow Jesus? Well, if we understand that Jesus is trying to fill all things, including the church, then we need to make sure that we are not filling the church with things that might distract us away from Jesus. And now, obviously, what immediately might come to your mind is like, is sin or sinful behavior. We don't want to fill our church with that. We want to be filled with Jesus. And so we want to remove all kinds of sin. We want to remove gossip and slander and hypocrisy and et cetera. We want to remove all of that. But that also includes even removing good things that cut out the ultimate thing, which is Jesus. See, there's a tendency that that happens in churches where they get busy doing all kinds of good things that the ultimate thing, which is Jesus, starts to get crowded out. And what we want to do as a church is to keep the main one, the main thing, that we want Jesus to be the center of our church and we want to be filled with the fullness of Christ. That we want this, this atmosphere, this environment on Sunday mornings to be a place where Jesus feels at home here, where he feels welcomed, where he feels invited. And we want Jesus to, to look at College Park Fishers and say, man, I feel desired here. I, I, feel, I feel welcomed here. I feel comfortable here. I don't feel like I'm competing with all kinds of other things. And so that, that demands the question of, are you expecting, when you, when you drive up here off Olio Road or wherever you come from, and you pull into the parking lot, do you have an expectation and a desire to be filled with the fullness of Christ? Is that what you want when you come in here? Like, like when, when you stop and you think about, what do I want to be filled with on Sunday morning when I walk out of here? What do I want to be filled with? Is it Jesus? Is it really the fullness of Christ? Or do you want to be filled with with a particular kind of emotion? Or do you want to be filled with, with maybe more head knowledge or, or to be told something that, that you didn't know before? Or do you want to be filled with, with just being entertained? Or do you want to be filled with the fullness of Christ? Not, not a pep talk, not, not to be entertained with good music or, or to drink good, good coffee and, and enjoy some good donuts. But as you drive here on Sunday morning, is your heart screaming, I want Jesus, I want to be filled with the fullness of Jesus as I gather with his people. Like I want to sing songs about Jesus today. I want to hear a sermon about Jesus. Is that your heartbeat when you come to College Park Fishers? Because man, when I, when I think about that and, and, I'm, and I'm reading this, and I'm like, man, Lord, keep us on mission. Keep us centered on igniting a passion to follow Jesus. And we get a room full of people who have this expectation and this desire to be filled with nothing but Jesus, that's going to help us stay on mission. So I just want to encourage you this morning just to do just a a really easy exercise. When you pull into the parking lot on Sunday mornings and you turn off your car, just turn to the person next to you and just, just say a quick 10, 15 second prayer that says something like this. Just say, Jesus, 
Fill me and fill us with yourself. Just to pray that, just before you walk in, just to set your desires, set your expectation that you want to be filled with Jesus, nothing else. Because I just, I just wonder, looking at this church, who we know they abandoned their love for Jesus, I wonder if they stopped filling themselves with Jesus and they started being filled with other things. And I, I want us to be a church that's filled with the fullness of Christ. Now, number three here, a third, a third key is that we follow Jesus <clears throat> by trusting in his leadership. Trusting in his leadership. Look at verses uh, 14 and 15 with me. It says, So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Now, Paul is, is basically contrasting verse 14 with verse 15. That he's saying in verse 15 that, that we speak the truth in love, <clears throat> we will grow up spiritually. Now, this is in contrast to what verse 14 says of what false Christians do. That false Christians, what they do is they deceive others, they are cunning. They are crafty. They carry people away from the truth and away from Jesus. And so Paul basically is saying, look, we don't want to do that. We don't want to be verse 14. But what we want is we want to lovingly speak the truth to one another in order to help us grow and stay centered <clears throat> on Jesus. And then you get to the end of verse 15, and Paul says that we are to grow up in every way into him, Jesus, who is the head into Christ. Look, with that little phrase there, Paul is declaring that Jesus rules and he governs the church. That Jesus, Jesus is the head of the body and the body is the church. Or as Ephesians 1, uh, 22 through 23 says, And he, Jesus, put all things under, or God put all things under his feet and, <clears throat> and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. Now, what Paul is saying here is because Jesus is the head, that speaks to the supremacy of Jesus over the church, that Jesus is the leader of the church. Like, this is why one of our core values, as you look at that sign out there, is the, the preeminence of Jesus, that we believe that, that for us to stay on mission, we want Jesus to be at the center of this church, leading this church. I love Colossians 1, 16 through 18, that says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Does that cause your heart to worship? Like that's describing Jesus. Like look, Jesus is a really, really big deal, not just because he's the savior, but because he is the center and the leader of our church. Look, I just want to say something this morning. Look, we, we have elders here and we have a staff here who are godly. We have a staff here and elders who love Jesus, but we're going to make mistakes. Like we, we, are, we are flawed 
Like we, we, we might disappoint you along the way, and yet Jesus will never make mistakes. Jesus will never, ever lead us down a road that we should not go as the church. And so for us to say, man, Jesus is the leader of the church. Jesus is the senior pastor. Jesus is the one calling the shots. We want to yield and submit ourselves to him and what he's doing in the church. And that's going to help us stay on mission because if we don't follow the leadership of the church, then that can cause all kinds of bad things, obviously. But one of the worst things that that can cause if we move away from following Jesus is that we can actually still do ministry. We can still do things in this church and yet not follow the leadership of Jesus. And yet one of the things that will happen is we will grow tired and we will grow into burnout if we are not following the leadership of where Jesus is taking our church. If you look at even the Old Testament, at, at Psalm uh, 127, it talks about when, when you don't follow the leadership of God, whatever it is in your life, this is what happens. The fatigue starts to set in. It says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. That it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Now you can apply that to the church here, that unless Jesus leads the church, those who serve, serve in vain. Look, so we, we just want to caution ourselves to make sure that we are following Jesus, and we're not following the latest fads. We're not following the coolest new, new ideas in ministry, but we are following Jesus as he leads our church. And like, this is why we are so committed as a church of once a month doing the prayer and worship nights. This is why once a month on Sunday nights, we gather as the church family and we say, Jesus, you are the senior pastor of this church. Jesus, we yield and we submit ourselves to you. We don't just seek your hand of the things that you give us, but we seek your face and we worship you because you and you alone are enough. That we want to submit to the leadership of Jesus in order to stay on mission. And then finally here, number four, another fourth key that Paul gives us is that we follow Jesus by engaging in his growth, engaging in his growth. Now, verse 16 is, is a wonderful verse. We get a picture of a church that is working uh, in a healthy way. Paul says, From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Isn't it a wonderful picture of, of how the church actually works? Like when each person is playing their role, like when you're using the gift that God gives you and we're working together as the church, this thing actually works. Like this actually produces growth. Like I don't know if you've ever wondered to yourself, like, man, why, why am I involved in church? Like does, does this thing ever work? Like what are we doing here? Is this just to, to check off the religion box and kind of go through our day? Well, Paul here I think is, is like screaming at us, following Jesus together actually works. Like this thing that, that God has created, this mechanism called the church is the primary way that generates spiritual growth in your life. Like you might be able to grow outside of the church for a period of time, but you will not sustain that growth. That growing in the church is the way that God has orchestrated 
how we are to follow Jesus and we follow Jesus together. And look, that is so important because you and I get passionate about the things that we believe actually work. Do you notice that? Like things that we, we take a step back and we say, man, this, this thing is worth it. This thing works. Like this, this produces something. That's what we tend to become passionate about. Like I, I was talking to my wife about this this weekend. She's got a, a friend from college who, who has started this, this workout plan and this diet. Looks like torture to me. But she's, she's started this thing and, and it works. Like she's, she's lost, uh, my wife's friend uh, has lost weight and is, is healthy and is, feeling, uh, w- is filled with tons of energy. And she's so passionate about it that it's kind of dominating her life. Like everything's revolving around her and she, around this workout plan. She's getting other people to get on board with this workout plan because she's convinced it works. And look, that's so true for us in following Jesus. Like if we really believe that the Bible works, that following Jesus works, that it produces growth within us, that will result in passion within us as we follow him. And so, look, yes, I, I want all of us to be engaged in, in this church to grow, to use your gift, to not be a bystander, but to be engaged in what we're doing, to, to not be a consumer, but to be involved in the church. Yes, that is my passion, that is my heart for each and every one of us. But I have a passion that, that runs deeper than that, and it's at the heart level of every single one of us, that what I want to be true for every single person is that you are utterly convinced that following Jesus works, that this gospel produces growth in your life, that we're not just wasting our time, but we're following this plan that God has set out before us to be engaged in the local church together, that this thing actually works. I get asked the question from time to time, especially people from, uh, from college and from high school that I grew up with now that, um, now that I'm pastoring. They, they ask me this really interesting question. They say, um, how involved in the church should I be? It's always an interesting question to ask a pastor that. And, and I've answered that question in, in different ways. But, but that question, I, I just couldn't get out of my mind as I was reading this chapter in Ephesians. And I stopped, and I was, I was I'm like, man, what would Paul say to that question? How, how would he respond to how involved in the church should you be? And I think Paul would respond, and he would say, well, how, how involved do you want Christ to be in your life? Like, I, I think Paul would, would respond and say, well, how involved you are in the church is how active Jesus will be in your life. And you think about that for a moment, and it makes sense. Like when you take a step back and you realize that Jesus calls the church what? He calls the church his bride. That Jesus, according to Ephesians 5.25, died for the church. That Jesus is the head over the church. That Jesus has given gifts to the church. Like Jesus' view of the church is pretty high in my mind. And so the, the logical question should be, well, shouldn't we revolve our lives around the church? Like, shouldn't we be actively engaged and connected to the church, to the bride of Christ? And so I say that because I am utterly convinced that following Jesus actually works. It produces life change. It produces hope in my life. Other people ask me questions about what does it mean to follow Jesus because there is something about following Jesus that you and I are wired to do and to be because that's what it means 
to be a follower of Jesus. So look, something, something happened to this church that, that serves as a warning for us. Something happened where they lost that mission. They lost that love for Jesus that I am praying and that I'm hoping that our eyes and our hearts stay focused and stay centered on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That we cannot lose sight of why Jesus gives the church gifts. We can't lose sight of the fact that Jesus wants to fill our church with himself. We can't lose sight of Jesus' leadership over our church, and we can't lose sight of the fact that we are called to be engaged in his church in order to produce growth. We want to do that with passion. That passion means that we revolve our lives around it. It's what we talk about. It's what we daydream about. It's what we influence people to, and we get to do that together as the people of God to ignite a passion to follow Jesus. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for Jesus. God, we are just beside ourselves when we, when we stop and we actually think about all that Jesus is. God, even reading these passages in Ephesians and, and Colossians about the preeminence of Jesus. God, God, your word is just oozing out of worship for Jesus. And God, we want to be caught up in that worship. God, we never want to grow cold towards Jesus. So God, would you protect us from that? God, would you help us to be passionate about following Jesus? God, would you help our desires to be filled with Jesus? That's all that we want when we gather together as as your people. And so God, make that a reality in our church. Help us to stay on target as a church as we ignite a passion to follow you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.